Good evening and thank you for tuning in to York's Political Mashup. I'm pleased to be joined by four representatives this evening. Uh, we have William Bentley who's joining us from the Labour Club at York University. William, would you like to say hello? Hi, uh, nice to be here. We have Oliver Davey who is representing the York Tories and has previously been on the show. Evening. We have Pads, who has, is also a consistent uh, attendee of the show and is representing the Greens. Hi, everyone. And we have Francesca, who is coming on again as an independent. Francesca, would you like to say hello? Hi. So we're going to start off by speaking about <clears throat> the most immediate and obvious thing to talk about, which is the up-and-coming lockdown. Uh, so we'll start off with William. Uh, so, William, do you think that the government can be criticised for not bringing in the lockdown earlier? As Sir Keir Starmer tweeted yesterday how he'd called for a lockdown to be put in place three weeks ago. Uh, so, do you think there should have been a lockdown put in place at a similar time to maybe when Wales had put it in place? Or maybe you don't think a lockdown is appropriate at all? I think the spread was very much regionalised at first. So local lockdowns were, in my opinion, a sensible response and national lockdowns, especially in terms of public opinion and the uh, obvious economic implications would have been quite a heavy handed response at the time. But in hindsight, seeing how quickly it's spreading, like in all regions of the country, especially in the northeast and northwest, I sort of feel that a national lockdown is the only alternative. So in hindsight, I think a circuit breaker over half term would have certainly been the best option and would have had uh, the least impactful economic consequences. Though at the same time, it's um, the trend obviously has meant that there has been um, some delay in reaching that. So it is right to criticise the government, but at the same time, uh, I think it's questionable that the signs of a national lockdown were as obvious as they were. I mean, you mentioned how it's particularly, the, the, the virus is spreading particularly uh, a high rate in the northeast. And mm. what, why would you say that we should abandon the the tier strategy then if there are some areas which are experiencing higher levels of transmission than others? Uh, well, I feel right now, obviously, it has a chance and the possibility of spreading far more into the southeast, the Midlands and whatnot. Uh, but the tiered system as it is right now, um, it, I feel its ability so far in how it's been used in lockdowns in areas of you know, Manchester and whatnot across the northeast has been somewhat limited. And so its effect compared to somewhat bigger size is not being effective in dealing with the uh, issue at hand. So I suppose the uh, national lockdown is the best response to ensure there's a full um, breaking of transmission and not simply locking down an area too late to stop it from spreading on into a neighbouring city and, not, and whatnot. I mean, do you think it's fair that some areas are going to, businesses are going to have to lock down when the, the rate of transmission and the number of cases per 100,000 is just very different. I mean, I'll give an example. I mean, for example, in East Suffolk, there's a 609.5 cases per 100,000. In mm. York, there is 1,796.2 cases per 100,000. And in Manchester, there's 3,795.3 cases per 100,000. So do you think it's... Do you think by imposing a, a, a blanket uh, national lockdown, it fails to appreciate the complexities there are in the different rates of transmission across the country? I think it's definitely regrettable, especially in the sense of how many local businesses and areas where you know transmission is extremely low will simply not survive the second lockdown, even with the extension of 
supposed to. But obviously doing differing rules for every single county in the country and with devolved governments and whatnot and mayoralities would have been an extremely complicated. So obviously blanket solution is the easiest for the government. Uh, but in terms of how difficult it is to track transmission and how often it is the rules and regulations are imposed often too late, uh, given how transmission is monitored, uh, doing it on a case-by-case -case basis within a really complex and difficult matter. Uh, but obviously mm. it is deeply regrettable the amount of economic devastation mm. the second lockdown is inevitably going to cause. So I feel that some rules for businesses could have been less allowed to act in some manner, especially when you consider that in terms of testing having increased largely, the actual number of cases uh, has caused quite a lot of um, you know, fear and whatnot in areas of the country which could easily you know, continue to operate some manner throughout lockdown. Let's go to uh, Oliver now. So, Oliver, I mean, what do you think about the, the fact that the government has very quickly abandoned this tier system and has decided to go in, decided to adopt another lockdown, despite Johnson saying that it was definitely a, not an option that he wanted to, to pursue? Is it a case that the government is just deciding to adapt to the data or do you, do you think he, they should be praised for their pragmatism or would you say that th th there's an alternative to locking down again? Um, I actually agree almost completely, I think, with, with what's just been said. Um, I think the problem with the tiered approach was that over time we saw that almost the entirety of the North now was in tier three or just about to come under tier three. <clears throat> and when it gets to a point where most of the country is going to be under tier three or, or tier two, it seems very hard to make an argument that some parts of the country shouldn't be locked down should we just have a, a, a sort of an England-only approach where it's much easier for people to follow, much more simple um, to get across on TV programmes and, and, and in Parliament and things? Um, do I agree with the lockdown at the moment? No, probably not. Um, but that's, I wouldn't say it's based on any specific evidence. I just don't like the idea of lockdowns because I think it's, it's going to cause a never-ending cycle of lockdowns. Maybe, you know, February, March, we're going to have to do this again. Um mm. But the government, it was quite clear the government had to do something. Um, I was looking at data the other day. Obviously, the problem for government isn't um, really cases, it's hospitalizations, because that's the key here. It's it's about keeping under control um, the virus so it doesn't t overtake hospitals. And it means that people who need um, treatment for cancers and, and you know injuries and things throughout lockdown and throughout their lives can uh, get that treatment. And we see now in the Southwest that by the first week of December, if we do nothing, um, the whole, the whole of the Southwest hospital system will be overrun with COVID patients. Now, the rates in the Southwest are really low, and the argument was that it shouldn't be treated the same as um, Liverpool, the same as Newcastle, the same places where rates are high. But when it's, you know, it's quite clear, I, I, I live down there, and it's quite clear that the hospital network isn't up to scratch. And actually, though we have fewer cases, hospitals are going to be overrun before we know it. So an all England approach is probably the right idea now. Um, I mean, though I don't yeah. like it, and I don't think you're gonna like it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned how you don't like lockdowns, and is it is the imposition of another lockdown really a, a sort of recognition that the first one failed in the sense that the restrictions were eased and now we're back at square one? What, sh do you think that do you think that it was worth subsidising a lot of these businesses? Uh, which are now, as William mentioned, he referenced the fact that a lot of them are now just going to go over the edge and uh, mm -hmm. go bankrupt. So was it really worth even subsidising them if we're just going to continuously have these lockdowns where businesses are not going to be able to trade? 
Well, yeah, I think the first lockdown was important to some extent anyway for, for part of it because it gave us that time which we should have used um, and only partially used to build up a, an increased testing and tracing system to help us avoid future lockdowns. And yeah, it has failed in a sense that we have had to go back in and take these measures, the draconian measures that no Conservative government would ever want to take. And I don't believe really Boris wants to take, but but he has to. Um I actually think politically it's very bad for the government this week because what we've seen for the last you know month or so now is different Labour figures and ending in Keir Starmer a couple of weeks ago coming out and saying that what we need is a, a, a so-called circuit breaker and, and a, a whole national lockdown for a month, an arbitrary month, which makes no sense anyway because you know, the coronavirus doesn't respect time patterns, human time patterns a month. You know, it's just pl- plucked out of thin air. Um, but what it's allowed is that Keir Starmer now looks like um, a genius because if we did what he said three weeks ago we could have avoided this now so close to Christmas and um, you know the, the impact it's going to make on students returning home for the end of the term potentially um, so I think it's politically damaging for the government I think it's made them look weak um, and yeah I I agree almost completely as I said with what's been said earlier about um, businesses we're going to you know the pub trade in the country is on its knees anyway and um, past governments have done nothing to help them and this is really going to be the, um, you know, the stone that breaks the camel's back. I think and the, the straw that, sorry, that breaks the camel's back, um, because all these family-run businesses, pubs, cafes, they're all going to have to go, um, even with the government support that is quite generous, even for conservative government. Um, yeah. yeah, I really, feel, okay. I really feel sorry for them, but you know. Okay, thank you. Let's go to Francesca. Uh, Francesca, what do you make of this latest lockdown and? Is there, are you worried that the the problem with this lockdown is that it may be never ending and that it will just be continuously extended beyond the date uh, of the 2nd of December? Um, I must say, I do think it will probably be extended. Um, there's already reports um, and speculation in the press that it's going to be extended. Um, and I mean, Whitehall has more leaks than Annette. That, that wasn't quite the right um, simile, but uh, um, yeah, my main problem with this lockdown is I complete. I think it's the right decision, even if it's difficult. Um, it was, to be fair to the government, it was explained very clearly um, and the data was shown. Um, and scientists, I think, for quite a while have been saying that you're going to have to have some form of lockdown at some point um, because the it's, it's so infectious um, but they they've created this lockdown and um, they've called for a lockdown that will have drastic effects on people's mental health um, on business um, and yet they've kept the schools and universities open um, because of sort of preliminary data suggesting that children aren't that good at spreading it. Um, one, actually, um, there's a lot of evidence now the schools have actually opened and we've seen it in practice um, that actually children are quite good at transmitting it um, they just don't get very ill with it. Um, mm. And I, this is anecdotal, but I'm sure um, 
everyone here and everyone listening will know numerous people who have got it from a school child. Um, my, I'm from Manchester, where, as you said, it's incredibly high. And the, pe- my, the relatives that I have who've got it, have got it from their children. I think so do you so in, do you think do you think Francesca then that Andy Burnham and the mayor of Liverpool Steve Rotherham are right in saying that educational institutions should close during this lockdown? Um yeah. Yeah. Um I think and even if it's just something like a rotor system um which I've heard suggested by scientists um just to reduce that risk of transmission um, I, I've lost the figure, but um, I think the the infection rate in like high school age children went up by an insane amount. Um, I believe like seventy seven times over. Um, yeah, and the R rate has rocketed back up after the schools have opened. Um, yeah, they're major, major transmission grounds, and yeah. it's utterly ridiculous that mm. they've been kept open while we've made a, a, a still understandable decision to have a lockdown that will damage so, so many lives. Um, yeah, it, 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 it seems like it's all for nothing if you're going to keep the schools open, and it will mean that it's extended. Um, I think mm. if we don't, the only way, aside from a vaccine, that we'll get out of this is to develop sort of the tools and protocols as a society that mean we can go about our daily lives more safely. Um, and to be honest, they're probably skills that need developing anyway, because it looks like we're on a path to antibiotic resistance and the world is getting more and more globalised um, yeah with every passing year oh, yeah. Um, and we have done that with masks and hand sanitizer, but it also involves social distancing protocol like yeah. you can't go in someone's house but you can pack children in a classroom um, together oh, yeah. well thank you for those comments we'll go to pads now uh, pads would you say you would echo what Francesca has said on schools and what are your thoughts in general about this latest lockdown and whether you think it's going to be effective or necessary? Um, in terms of the schools, I don't, th- I don't actually agree that you should close schools. I think maybe um, more distinction needs to be made in terms of age. I think maybe for younger kids, it's more important for them to go to school. I think they um, because obviously we've got less capacity to understand the situation. I think like... Like my brother's got two kids, and to see them after a couple of months with no schools, I think they they really suffer from it worse than older kids who can, I guess, like understand what's going on better. Um, so if you are going to close some schools, I think they should probably you should probably aim at maybe older children. I think older children can um, adapt more easily to like life at home than younger kids. Um, yeah. In terms of whether the lockdown itself is a good idea, um, I, I think it is. Yeah, I think. Um, the last lockdown demonstrated that these like rigorous sort of measures can effectively reduce the rate of virus for a while, for a time at least. So I think 
in terms of doing it now, if there is a period of time after the lockdown when the rate is lower, that should correspond to the festive period. So I think that'll be, in terms of timing, it's almost perfect for, for maximizing our chances of having a comparatively normal Christmas. I mean, um, do you, but in the long term, or medium term, I guess, like, so go on. Do you still have confidence in the government's strategy towards the viruses? YouGov has found that only 28% of the public thought measures such as the pub curfews were an effective way of tackling the virus. And the, the uh, latest polling indicates that the Conservative Party is gradually slipping behind the Labour Party by around five percentage points. So do you think the government has acted effectively so far in, in, in dealing with the virus? Uh, I think it's been a mixed bag. Obviously, that the strategies evolving um, with mm. each new development. I think it's very easy to be the opposition in situations like this, like just offering these critiques. It's much harder to govern. But um, I think now something maybe, something maybe we can hold on to is like there's almost uh, not an end date, but I know from what Chris Whitty and the other scientists were saying the other day, it's um, they. I think they suggested that by spring, it's likely that maybe society would have adapted more effectively to dealing with the virus. So we, we might see maybe um, improvements in sort of early to mid next year in terms of like how we live. Um, so although I suppose a vaccine is the only sort of foolproof method of getting rid of it, I think there are a range of other measures which could, um, with time, like I suppose, work together to reduce its impact on our lives. I mean, do you, do, do you think perhaps that there's an alternative to... Uh, a lockdown approach is there's some commentators in the spectator said that what you should do is instead set up a special national shielding task force to be more selective in protecting those who are more vulnerable do you think that there's no choice but to lock down because that's just seems to be the general consensus across the world as to how the virus is dealt with well i think we know that lockdowns work like to a certain extent in reducing the prevalence of a virus this when we sort of when we tried to like experiment all these ideas about task forces and stuff i guess if they work is all very well but if they don't work or if they work to a limited degree i think we're almost sacrificing people's lives for that experimentation because obviously while we're trying that more people are dying and the rates continue to rise potentially so i think yeah i think we know the lockdown works as a means of virus control um so yeah i do, I do think lockdown's probably the best policy i'm not i don't believe it will be extended either i think it will be i think a month's long enough to have a tangible impact on the infection rate okay uh let's just go back to uh we'll go to william uh i want to know your thoughts on the issue of schools and whether you think that they should remain open i mean the national education union has called for schools to close um so what are your thoughts on schools and also in the maybe a broader point universities as well well i feel that in terms of closing schools and universities is obviously especially in terms of schools can have a very detrimental impact on like young children's mental development in this period and sending them home to be you know home would make things even more difficult but in terms of how things are operating currently at schools the actual system in place isn't much more effective it is a very difficult time in primary schools right now in terms of how uh, schools being managed with new health regulations but closing them down again would obviously put great financial strain on the schools, but also um, it would um, cause troubles in terms of curriculum, how the students are taught, falling behind for a year. So in some ways, it would have been better to have made a snap decision of whether or not years don't go ahead at all, however, uh, children should essentially uh, have to um, move back a year, obviously. Uh, at this point, that's too late. So at, at this point, I feel the only sensible solution is to try and make those children's education continue as best as possible. So if 
health advice uh, explains that schools stay open to an extent that children can still receive satisfactory education, I think they should continue going to school, both for the sake of parents being able to not have to stay home to look after their children, but also for their mental development. Universities are a lot more complicated an issue in the sense that I feel, well, currently the university experience we're getting right now probably isn't to the satisfaction of a lot of students, especially first years. And I do feel quite a lot of sympathy is going through this right now. Uh, but being sent home now would cause even more confusion and would probably make the actual ability to learn without access to any of campuses even more complex. And also probably put a lot of strain on the, um, the staff and lecturers and whatnot really uh, don't see how a full-on university shutdown could really be in place. And also, considering it is already largely a self-contained group, it's the fact that universities don't really get much interaction outside of their own campus bubble. I feel it's a slightly lower risk, but obviously when it comes to sending university students home for Christmas, that will be a lot more problematic. So I think questions will be have to levied in that regard. But as it is right now, I think universities should stay open personally. Okay, thank you, William. Let's go to Oliver. Oliver, what are your thoughts on this issue of educational institutions and whether they should stay open or not? I don't think there should be any question of that. We talk about businesses, you know, struggling, pubs struggling, the hospitality industry. If we want to damage the economy in one single way that will last for generations, is to shut schools now, because we all, you know, we've all been educated. We're at a decent university. We all know how important it is and how much it can change some people's lives and especially the lives of, of the poorest students who don't have access to you know um, teaching in in the years to come with the, to catch up with the ones they've missed it's the most important thing in someone's life and to shut schools you know the national education union calling for that is it's an absolute disgrace and it just shows at the end of the day what the weather sort of motives are the motives is not to protect and um, to educate children to do what the teachers who are part of the union want to do. The motives are just to um, go against anything the government wants to do. And the government say they want to keep schools open, the teachers union goes against it. When the government says that they think it should shut schools, the teachers union say they think it should keep them open to some extent. It's ridiculous. Um, no, I think schools should definitely stay open. And the same for universities. I mean, yeah, it's a bit rubbish when teaching has to go online, but it is better than nothing. And I, you know, most people I've spoken to at York are, are intending to stay in York over the lockdown. So there's no reason why, um, given the certain um, sort of chances the university's been given by the government, sort of um, exemptions the university's been given, that we can't have some uh, form of in-person teaching each week as student population. Um, so of course, education is definitely stay open during lockdown. Could I okay. add something? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to come come in again? Um, I think in normal times, the points that have been made in response would absolutely stand. But actually, in the current climate, so many children are off all the time. Um, lots of people are randomly off for two weeks because they've been in contact with somebody and they have to isolate. It's not a normal period, basically. Um, for students and actually if you keep the schools open when so many people are going to have to go off all the time um, what you're doing sorry, what you're doing is punishing the students who are off the most because they have to be provided work um, and work that may not be 
I mean, there's only so much a teacher can do. Like, particularly when you're younger and, or when you're in high school, when learning is a little more tailored, um, it's incredibly difficult for teachers to constantly create packs um, at random, at short notice um, for students. And they're going to suffer from it, um, suffer because of it. And actually, if you move all teaching online, although it's obviously not ideal, nobody wants that to happen, but actually, if you don't open the schools, as well as reducing the R rate, probably very, very heavily, um, although they're still they're still trying to get the data for that, um, then, yeah, you also protect the children who are off the most because you ensure everybody is getting an equal sort of teaching and you're making teaching accessible to all of the children, basically. I suppose, I suppose Francesca, people are proponents of those who believe that children should stay at school would ask is they... When do you think, if, if if children don't stay at school and are told to go home and learn learn from the from their houses, then when do you think it would be possible for children to go back to school? Because there, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the actual increase in terms of the transmission of the virus uh, largely started again to take place once children went back to school. So I suppose if I suppose the problem you have if you say children should not go to school is, is it just going to be an indefinite period of the children aren't going to go back to school until we find a vaccine, which is not, there's no kind of end, definite end point at which that might might occur? Um, maybe, but actually I think there's a much higher chance that you'd be able to get the R rate back down quickly. Um, you would maybe buy more time to have a, um, to work schools better. You could maybe implement a rotor system. Um, I think at the very least it would, I think the R rate would go down a lot, lot quicker. Um, you would save lives. And yeah, there is a risk of that happening. But also, I think we're going to see large-scale disruption, and we're going to see more people, and that includes school children, getting the virus, and more families getting it too, which I think is one of the most disruptive things. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's now uh, move on to a different topic because I think, unless anyone has anyone else to, anything else to say, I think we've spoken at length about. Uh, COVID-19 and the the impending lockdown. Um, so let's now talk about Jeremy Corbyn and his recent suspension. Um, we'll start off with William as you're representing New York Labour. Um, I mean, William, what, what, what do you, did you make of uh, Keir Starmer's decision to suspend Corbyn in the wake of his comments about uh, the ECHR's report into anti-Semitism. Well, obviously, I have to say this is entirely only my own political opinion, and I don't yeah. represent the club at all. It's just completely my own. But personally, I completely agree with the decision, and I think that after uh, 
just a crisis as disgraceful as the one that has happened to the party of the past um, five years or being investigated by the European Human Rights Commission. Only in response can you show a strong hand to prove that you actually need business on tackling down on it. That's the only appropriate response. So when the former leader of the Labour Party, regardless of his position, had he been a backbench MP all his life or had only just left office, um, the fact that he said that it had been greatly exaggerated, um, you can't simply allow someone who represents your party in one of, its, in one of the country's constituencies to say that after immediately saying that people who claim it is not a large problem are part of the problem because it simply shows that you aren't serious and you're just giving a response for the sake of it. That's it. Keir Starmer's decision was the only appropriate one, regardless of whether you think that it's politically right for a leader to kick out the former leader. His position doesn't matter in the sense that he broke the rules. The only response is to punish him for that. So in that sense, the suspension was the only appropriate response, I, hope, I personally believe. Do, do you think the suspension will lead to a civil war in the Labour Party? As Ian Lavery has indicated that some of the Labour MPs who could be described as being on the left of the party have contemplated moving across uh, and becoming independents. I think Keir Starmer and the uh, more moderate wings of the party will have to move very carefully in the months going forward. I think in terms of membership, the divide is somewhat overstated. It's roughly, I think, about 23%, 28% of Labour members who disagree with the decision. That's still a sizable amount, nearly a third. Uh, but it's not quite as the uh, level of 50-50 uh, fracture that a lot of commentators seem to speculate it as. In the sense of um, the left of the party's representation in Parliament, uh, obviously I think some of the group decision is responsible for Semitism, but also Jeremy Corbyn holds a lot of sway with members of the Socialist campaign group, uh, ranks of MPs. Um, so in terms of managing Keir Stum's relationship with them, he will have to move carefully, but at the same time, I don't think he should compromise on his principles so if a split does come, if it means standing up straight to anti-Semitism, then simply put, so be it, really. OK, thank you, William. Let's go to Oliver. Oliver, I mean, do you think that this suspension of Jeremy Corbyn shows that you now have a leader of the opposition that is actually serious about tackling anti-Semitism within the political system? I think I would like to think so anyway. I mean, the suspension is, um, is well overdue. In fact, I, I believe it should have been it should have happened before. And what should be happening now is that he's kicked out of the party, not just suspended. It's clear from the report from the um, the Equality and Human Rights Commission that his office, you know, him himself and his office, um, were getting in the way of investigations into anti-Semitism uh, from Labour figures for political reasons. And we have on record numerous comments that Jeremy Corbyn has made in the past, while himself may not be. Um, an anti-Semite. He has said anti-Semitic things in the past, and um, in, you know, then it's up for people to judge um, in their own opinion whether whether he is or isn't anti-Semitic. Do we? Do I think Keir Starmer is looking to change Labour and and to get rid of anti-Semitism? Yes, of course. I, I don't doubt for a minute that he doesn't want it in his party, um, both politically and because you know he's a, a decent human being at the end of the day, um, but. When we look at the Labour Party, we see many on the front bench of Labour currently who happily were some of the biggest supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, not just in the last election, because you can't necessarily blame them for that, given that they wanted the Labour government as much as Jeremy Corbyn did. But since 2015 and from 2015, they've been his biggest supporters in the party nationally, even internationally on the international stage. Um, and, and Keir Starmer, I'm afraid, falls in that boat himself. 
you know, this is a man who has defended um, Jeremy Corbyn over the issue of anti-Semitism and, and Labour Party handling of anti-Semitism in the past. And it's simply not good enough. Um, there's certain figures in the Labour Party, such as Richard Burgeon and, and other figures like that, who have come out since um, Corbyn got suspended and defended him. Now, with the likes of Richard Burgeon, it's no surprise, given that, you know, him himself has come out and said anti-Semitic things in the past. But I think it's still there in the Labour Party. And I'd like to think they're going to do something about it. Um, but really, I think perhaps the only way to do it is for the Labour Party to split. And I think it would be, obviously be very good for the Conservative Party. It would probably be good for Labour and it would be good for the country because I have no doubt that the Keir Starmer sort of more moderate left wing, um, the sort of government, that sort of opposition the government can actually work work through in a national crisis, work work with, sorry, in a national crisis, will come through and will get rid of the Labour, uh, the Labour far left. Corbyn has, you know, successfully in some, in some sense convinced many, if not most, uni students to fall behind. And I think it's time that people recognise that actually, yeah, th- there's a lot of pain out there, especially in the Jewish community, but also others, um, that people, you know, didn't think about it and just went for Corbyn, who, well, who has now been yeah. suspended. I mean, so. Oliver, do you, do, you, do you think that Starmer has, uh, has managed to successfully rebrand the Labour Party since Corbyn's departure. I mean, I referenced earlier that the Conservatives are five percentage points uh, behind the Labour Party now in the latest mm-hmm. poll. Um, do you think that this suspension is, is, even if it's most likely that the National Committee is not going to actually continue the suspension, it provides Starmer with useful political capital in terms of distancing himself from someone who's now regarded as an electoral liability. Um, I think he's managed to rebrand the Labour Party in the sense that any leader does when they take when they take office, um, especially from a leader that was politically as big as, as Jeremy Corbyn. Um, you know, in many ways, if you like, when David Cameron eventually took over from the. Um, the Thatcherer, if you like, because really that was just her, her, her John, more John Major's legacy. He managed to rebrand the party, and it's not particularly hard because it happens anyway. Um, but I mean, you mentioned the National Executive Committee of, of Labour Party. That's stuffed full currently of, of, of so called Corbynites, you know, of people that he's put there and um, who no doubt support him or who have been rewarded with places. And similarly with the, the Parliamentary Labour Party. and. You know, Labour in many ways isn't famed for its sort of um, people feeling party responsibility or, or, or collective spirit when t- things get tough. And, you know, some Labour MPs have come out and said things in the past that Labour leaders don't support. And I think many Labour MPs have continued to do that when they've been calling um, the decision by Keir Starmer to suspend him um, wrong and, and in some degree a disgrace. Um, so... I think there's been some rebranding, but nothing, nothing um, sort of special or, or significant, really. Okay, thank you, Oliver. Let's go to Francesca now. I mean, Francesca, you came on our show quite a lot last year, and you spoke quite passionately about the problem of anti-Semitism. Uh, what are your thoughts on this latest development that has taken place? Well, to be brutally honest, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> um, I, I mean, obviously, I suspect Keir Starmer and lots of people in the Labour Party probably wanted to suspend Corbyn a long time ago. Um, but I do think it's the right thing to do now because they've got the backing of the 
EHRC report. Um, and I think, unfortunately, with a minority of people, there is a massive backlash. Um, Chris Williamson sent out an email claiming that um, Corbyn's suspension was wrong and that there wasn't an anti-Semitism problem in, um, in the Labour Party, um, in which he said that they'd won or they'd continue to fight something like that against the Zionist lobby, um, which is just it's ironic. But um, unfortunately, those people exist, and I think the way Starmer has handled it is good um, because... Yeah, he's got the sorry, I'm going on, but he's got the backing of an independent body, um, and he's got proof. He's got there was a multitude of proof, but he's got independent proof that Corbyn did, um, to put it lightly, mishandle the anti-Semitism crisis in Labour that he ignored it, um, and I hope that. I don't think it's the problem's going to be solved straight away. I think it will take a lot of time um, for voters who are concerned about it to build up trust with Labour again. Um, but I think Keir Starmer is doing things um, to help. I think he's yeah, I think he's doing everything he can to try and rebuild that trust. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Francesca. Uh, we'll now go to Pads. Uh, Pads, what are your thoughts on Starmer's latest decision, which has created a backlash from those in the party, such as Diane Abbott and many of those who served under Corbyn during his uh, tenure as leader? Yeah, I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting gesture. I think it's, it's quite symbolic, isn't it? Of, yeah, I suppose. Keir Starmer wants to make the point that um, that particular chapter in Labour's history is uh, is to be replaced by his his brand of politics. I suppose it's more of a. I'm sure there was like a genuine. Um, I'm sure he genuinely did believe that it was the right thing to do. But also, I, I, I see it as like a like a sea change, almost like um, a statement. Do you do you think it will? Do you think it's a sign that Starmer? is willing to make tough decisions which will inevitably lead to a sea of change in terms of the actual ideology of the party or do you think this is just this is just a sort of a more of a pr kind of stunt to distance himself from corbyn um well i think i don't i don't see it as a particularly courageous thing i think corbyn's already was vulnerable after the general election so i don't see it as keir starmer taking on like a particularly dangerous yeah. Um, task saying that there are obviously like there's still a strong Corbynist element within the party, but yeah, I, I do I do believe it was more of a symbolic thing, almost like um like a, a signal to voters that uh, yeah. Labour of the next four years will be I suppose more of a moderate party than it has been for the last couple yeah. of years. Um, okay, we're gonna now move on to the last topic, uh, and I think it'd be fitting to talk about the U.S. presidential election as it's tomorrow it all kicks off so i'll start off with pads and then we'll go work our way back up to the rest of you um i mean pads do you think it's a weakness of the u.s system uh the u.s political system that the new president if let if theoretically biden is elected as 
the next president of the United States. And he's only inaugurated in January rather than immediately. So you have this period in which you have an incumbent president who is actually leaving office very soon, but you'll have the same strategy towards the COVID-19. Um, well, I think there have been examples in the past of where it has sort of come back to bite them, um, obviously in, the, in the, the long past. But um, I think it is important for the, the new president to have time to sort of choose their cabinet and there's a, there's a great deal that uh, you have to learn, I suppose, as a new presidential, as a president-elect, you have to um, familiarise yourself with the office before, um, before you actually begin. I... Yeah. I know that the period of time now is shorter than what it used to be. I think the 20th Amendment, was it? Which reduced it, I think, to three months. It used to be a lot longer. Um, I think it's a quirk of the system. Whether or not it's a weakness, I think it's difficult, difficult to say. I think it's important that there is a, um, a gap of some kind, especially when you're sort of governing such a big, um, complex polity. But um, I don't think it's for us to say if it's a weakness or not. I think we should focus more on our own governmental system, um, which isn't obviously perfect. Yeah. And I mean, Florida is increasingly looking likely to be one of these states which is going to be crucial um it amounts to 29 electoral college votes and last time trump won it by over 100,000 but in the past it has been subject to an adjudication by the supreme court and obviously many of you know in 2000 george w bush captured the state and subsequently came the became the president as a result of the supreme court's adjudication do you think that it is likely that if it doesn't go Trump's way in certain states like Florida, that he'll challenge the results um, in terms of in terms of whether there's been any corruption in terms of the postal votes? So he's already indicated that he might take legal action. Me? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I do believe he might, um, in theory, challenge. If it's, a, if it's a very sort of close run thing, he might take it to the Supreme Court. Um, but if you look at the last few months, I think there are, there are quite a lot of procedures that a president has to go through, has to undertake. Um, okay. in, uh, just in case they were to lose the election. So I think um, in the last year of every presidential term, that president has to participate in a lot of... Um, has to meet a lot of deadlines to show that they're you know, preparing for a potential transition. And if you look at Trump's record, he has met all those deadlines. So I think he is prepared, in theory, to accept uh, defeat. But yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he does uh, legally challenge, if he deems it like worthwhile doing so. Mm. Uh, let's go to Francesca now. Francesca, what do you think about the prospect of whether Trump's going to take legal action if he, d if he, in the case he does lose? Obviously, it's not definitely he will lose. And um, also about whether you think it's a weakness of the system that the U.S. president doesn't come in immediately if they're if they're a new president. Um, on the topic of the legal action, um, it's cons I can imagine Trump wanting to do that, um, but hopefully, unless it was viable and unless it was a reasonable action, I do think that his staffers wouldn't let him do that. Um, for all, I may not agree with their sort of values, but I do think, you know, they're relatively smart people. Um, you don't end up in those sorts of jobs 
um, without some type of intelligence. Um, so I think he would be restrained. Um, I think in his speeches, I mean, it's been reported that he just makes up whatever he wants and he disregards the speeches pre-written for him. So I actually think that that's more of a bluff. Um, and I think he'd be stopped from doing that, even if he wanted to. Um, and I don't personally think it's a weakness. I think it seems like a weakness at the moment because a lot of people want Trump out as soon as possible. Um, but no, I agree with... Um, yeah, I agree with what I said. Like, I... Yeah, it, it, you do need time to prepare. And I do, I, I think it's a bit better maybe than the British system, personally. Um, because you do have that time to prepare. Um, and yeah, you're not going to be taken completely by surprise. Okay, thank you, Francesca. Uh, Oliver, what are your thoughts on what we've just discussed? Yeah, so, I mean, on on the American system... Um... I, I actually think that the fact they don't come until January is, is an absolute joke. And though I don't believe it's the only weakness of the system, I, I think I've said before on here that um, I'm a firm believer that you can't have a political head of state and that um, you just don't elect the head of states. It just doesn't make any sense in my mind. Um, and I think America is a great example of why, why you don't. Um, the American system is probably the worst system in the democratic world, perhaps with the exception of Belgium. And probably, definitely, almost definitely, the exception of the European Union, um, it just doesn't work in a way um, that, that many others does. I mean, we talked about uh, time to prepare from November till January, but and then how the prime ministers come in over here and in, in many other countries, and presidents even in France come in almost immediately, and they have um, sweeping changes to the government. They announce their cabinets. If you're running an election, you should already know what you're running for. You should need time to prepare. You should be able to move in that night that you win or, or that day that you win. Um, on whether Trump's you know, going to hold on to power or not, um, I think it's a, it's a bit silly uh, when some people in America come out to suggest that you know he's going to keep hold of power. I think it's a bit ridiculous. Where this has all come from is because he's been asked in an interview, you know, will you commit to the handover of power? And he has refused to answer. He hasn't said no. He hasn't said yes. He's just refused to answer. Now, if you look at sort of his target voters, they don't want to lose. And um, for him to come out and say, of course, yes, as as he should obviously come out and say that, yes, I would commit to the handover of power as any politician, if people bothered to ask a question over here. It's it's completely ludicrous to suggest, I think, that he will keep border power, um, even if he'd be able to. Now, obviously, ch challenging it in court, that's a very American thing to do anyway. So um, I wouldn't rule that one out completely. Um, but keeping a hold of power by force, I think it's completely out of the window and it's a ludicrous suggestion. I think. Okay, thank you, Oliver. And now we'll finally go to William. Yeah, so in terms of um, the uh, first question on terms of the president coming into January, I feel obviously, like, historically, it means the president, the incumbent president, is the final four months of his term. Uh, doesn't really have the power to pass much through because, you know, congressmen and senators no longer really need to feel any loyalty to him. They become basically a lame duck president. So in that sense, at a time which is critical to the US, uh, that's obviously not a very good system. But in terms of Donald Trump's response, I don't think it's going to be that good anyway. So realistically, 
the difference is minimal in terms of damage to the country. And I don't think uh, Donald Trump would be in the best mental state to guide the country through that period of healing if he does this election. Uh, so in that sense, I feel it probably will make a little difference in the long run. I feel it should be reformed. Um, but obviously, there are traditions behind the American system. So reforming that obviously comes to a head in you know, Supreme Court and whatnot. In terms of whether I think Donald Trump be able to uh, hold on or cling on to power somewhere through the legal system or simply refusing to leave, I think the scenario is pretty unlikely because when you look at electoral predictions, the chances of the election being close enough uh, in one way or the other to be able to call a political recount would be um, have to be quite strange because obviously uh, the electoral states that are in swing, uh, like Michigan, not Michigan, sorry, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and whatnot. Uh, if Biden is winning on a swing enough to win states like Pennsylvania, he's almost certainly winning on a swing enough to win states like Florida. So obviously, I think a scenario like 2000, where it has to be taken to the Supreme Court because the election is so close, would have to have a very interesting alignment of Democratic and Republican states that don't really follow established polling trends. So obviously, I don't really worry that that's going to be a particular uh, pressing issue. Um, and obviously the chances of an electoral tie, meaning that the uh, Supreme Court and senators and whatnot would have to decide the president, that would cause an outcry. But it's just, to me, it's not a realistic possibility. And if it, there is going to be um, a winner, it will obviously be one way or the other, essentially. Okay, thank you. And I want to end the show by asking each, uh, just what, who you think is going to win. So if... We start off with William and we'll go down to Pads. Is it going to be Trump or Biden? Um, I think in terms of people talking about a polling error and whatnot in Trump's favour, is they're quite being quite desperate. And I think the uh, reminder of this up, you know, upset of 2016 has sort of made people quite deluded to polling's accuracy. I think it will be a Biden victory, and quite comfortably, though not as comfortably as some people are predicting. I think it will be in the margin of around 60 electoral votes, personally, but I got my face if it's not. Ollie? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in foreign politics at all, especially in America. Um, if I was an American, I'd certainly be hoping for Joe Biden. Um, as I'm thankfully not an American and a proud Brit, I'm uh, hoping for Donald Trump, a uh, Donald victory. Okay, uh, Francesca? Um, I think Biden, but could be wrong. Okay. And finally, Pads? I think Trump will win, probably. I think people underestimate like the social stigma attached to saying that you vote for Trump. So I think, obviously, for polling, um, I think you might get quite a lot of dishonesty there. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you people to... People sort of saying they vote for Biden or undecided when, in fact, they, they yeah. favour Trump. Okay. Well, thank you to all my guests for coming on this evening and we will be back again next week on the Monday. Uh, so thank you all for coming on and see you next week on the Monday. Cheers. <laughs>